Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is Anupa Mystery, and you're listening to Burnout, a podcast featuring short conversations about creative sustainability with working artists from Toronto and beyond. Some still don't know what to do. Some still don't know what to do. So today you're going to hear from Haley Melodic, who is a writer from Toronto who's now living in New York City. She was formerly an editor at the beloved website, The Hairpin, and now her work is everywhere. And so you'll hear us talk a little bit about her path to writing, which um, started with or maybe took a detour to makeup school. And you'll also hear about what she considers to be her beat, as well as the forthcoming book that she's working on right now. But we also spend quite a bit of time talking about her work as a labor organizer with the Freelance Solidarity Project. I felt it was important when we had this conversation to talk a little bit about organizing uh, in the context of creative or freelance pursuits, not because everyone has to join a union, um, although Haley makes a good case for it, but but because I think there are valuable parallels to be made in terms of what we consider to be work in media. You're hearing about Vice Newsrooms organizing, Pitchfork, Vox, all of these media entities that you might recognize, but it's actually become even more prescient. We're seeing it play out really acutely now in pandemic times where workers from places like Amazon and Whole Foods are organizing, are striking, and they're doing it for really basic things like clean and safe workplaces, access to paid sick leave and and healthcare. There's a lot of parallels that you might be able to make here with your life, but I hope that it gets you thinking about how other people are kind of moving through the world right now. It's a good one. Enjoy the episode. I actually just missed the deadline for a grant that I was going to apply to. Oh, God. Um, because I kept putting it off, putting it off. Like I had other things that seemed so much more important. And I was like, I don't even know if I'll get it or if it even applies. But it was such an easy process. I totally could have done it. And it was really like the day after the deadline, it hit me what I had done. How much money was it? Or It was supposed to be, you were supposed to ask for anywhere between two and $10,000. Mm-hmm. So I was going to ask for $4,000. It was for a month of research. But yeah, so now I can say with total certainty, I've, I have been rejected from grants or residencies that I've wanted. Um, I've gotten some. I have not applied to some. And the worst feeling is not applying. My name is Haley Melodic. I am a writer. I've been an editor. Recently, I've started working as a labor organizer. Um, and I currently live in New York City, but I'm from Toronto. Um, one of my favorite Haley facts is that you went to beauty school and worked as a makeup artist before becoming a writer. Yes. And actually, I worked as a makeup artist um, and had a few jobs before I became a writer. Um, oh, yes, that's true. But yeah, like uh, I went to an arts high school and I was very lucky to do so, even though I wasn't in the arts program. Um, 
yeah and so I always did the makeup for all of the like drama performances or for the dance recitals you know now I know when I was 18 that was when my depression was at its worst and um at its most untreated mm-hmm. um so I was lucky in my last year of high school you know when I didn't have to take math and I could choose a lot of my own courses my grade point average just like shot up all of a right. sudden yeah and I yeah, I I had a really good last year of high school in many respects where like I was doing makeup for all these productions and then I started um, working for the art section of the high school newspaper. I was doing all these things that actually all of a sudden I looked like a good student. Mm-hmm. I had a friend that I was very, very close to and she was somebody who was a good student and cared very much about school and she wanted to be a lawyer and her, like she was also just an incredible writer and one of the funniest people I've ever met. And so that really made me want to be more like her. Like mm. I, it was very inspiring. Um, and then she died quite early in our last year of high school. She had leukemia. Oh, shit. Um, and so after that, you know, there were a lot of I felt a lot of ways about it kind of like cut loose from all of these plans it's not like we had to do it together but without her I was sort of like I don't know what to do or how to do it and so I really you know I went to Ryerson journalism thinking about her plan she also I think she wanted to study she wanted to study English before going to law school because she loved reading and writing in the same way um and I think maybe she had some idea that she was going to study law and then use that to write, like mm. to go into journalism. Also, sorry to interrupt, but like just fascinated by like being a teenager and even having that much foresight. She cause... was so smart. She was the smartest one. Katie Freising. <laughs> I miss her every day. I so wonder what she would have thought about Look. everything. But yeah, so I studied art history, which was a weird choice for me. Um, yeah, I was lucky to have professors who were like, this is the history of the world's power religion has shaped the like not just the culture of the world but the like physical spatial reality of it as well this is how like um imperialism has worked and how money has flowed and where it's hidden like looking at the way yeah like churches and chapels became places for people to show their dominance or like Mm -hmm enact control over groups of people um and so that really like set the tone for I think everything that came after it but in the same way like I did that for about two years I moved to a few different retail jobs in the process um and then I just sort of panicked one day I remember this very clearly I was in a movie theater and I was just like what am I doing? It's going to take me seven years to get this degree I don't even know if I want to work in this field I don't know what I'm studying um yeah so I just like I just stopped enrolling for classes I never even dropped out I think I could re-enroll if I wanted to I looked into it once Uh um and then I went to makeup school because I was like that's the thing that I still think about that's the work that I miss doing the most and I was also you know I was probably like 22 at this point and I was very like I need a job. And that's also what was good about it. It was a school that was set up for people who were supposed to be working, right? So I could right. take classes all morning, go to my job in the afternoon, um, and then come back for an evening class, which I did for a little period of time. That also really set me up for being the type of person who can work all day, every day. And yeah, after that, I worked at some of the makeup counters at the Bay. I did like a bunch of short films and independent films and student films, um, some editorial work, 
in retrospect, I think it's clear that I had no idea what school was for or what school <laughs> was supposed to do. Yeah. Um, but I do think about some of my friends who were lucky enough to go to like some really prestigious schools. Oh, yeah. um, and they, you know, I don't know if they would describe it this way, but when I think about how they describe their learning, they're talking about four years where they just thought very deeply about everything they read. Mm. And I think that's the benefit of school. Yes. Like I just mean, that seems so inaccessible to me, you know, like. And also it's like, are any of those people, did any of those people go to school in Canada? No. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I wonder about that, too. I wonder if it was like that somehow I got this idea that school was more transactional than it really is, mm -hmm. or if the schools here are actually designed to be like, here's what you get, mm. you know, like mm -hmm. if you give us this amount of money and these amount of hours, you'll get the piece of paper that gets you a job. Yeah. Um, and less about, you know, yeah, just having the time to think about, you know, all the ideas that have come before you. Was there ever a point where you felt the need to to leave that part of you behind and be like, okay, I'm a writer now? Mm -hmm. And maybe in answering that, you could talk a bit about then how the writing happened. Yeah. Um, I don't think I have tried to disavow the makeup artistry. And sometimes I worry that I bring it up too much. Mm. Um and that I rely on it maybe as, I don't know what you would call it. I think I got into writing very slowly or like I know I did because I did it quite slowly. I was always working other jobs. Um, and it wasn't until I started working as the publisher of Warren that I was even in media proper. Oh, yeah, and even yeah. that. Forgot about that. I think that's it's, how we met. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That okay. would make sense. Yeah. But it, was kind of removed from the Canadian publishing industry proper, mm -hmm. you know, because we were independent, because we were all volunteer and like grant funded primarily. Like, yeah, we were all um, subscriber based revenue and grants, which gave us a lot of freedom. Um, but so, yeah, so when I was doing that, I feel like I met a lot of people, you know, like you and like the managing editor. Gwen Stegelman and the editor-in-chief, Sarah Marie McMahon, um, and then also Stacey May Fowles, who at the mm -hmm. time was doing circulation for The Walrus. There were just like a lot of women who were working in this industry that had day jobs. You know, they had like things they were doing that were maybe in media or related to media or maybe not. And then they freelanced on the side. They just like wrote about books or movies or mm -hmm. they wrote for fashion magazines every so often. And I thought that was incredible. Um the reason I ended up going to Warren was because I had been reading Sarah Nicole Prickett's writing for a while, and she needed an intern when she was the editor of iWeekly. Do you remember that? 
She was an editor there? Yeah, she was the fashion editor, I think. And she needed an intern to help her go to the shows. And I applied, but I was so... hell. I know. The shows. I know. (laughs) Um, But I was still working as a paralegal then. And so she couldn't hire me because my hours were bad. Mm -hmm. Um, But she recommended that I go to Warren. And that was how I ended up working with them. And yeah, looking at Sarah's writing, having someone who was a peer but was doing something that I found so inspiring and so incredible, Mm -hmm. it did make me start to think like... Oh, what are what are the different ways you can have a life as a writer? Because I think too, I had gotten this idea pretty young that you could be a reporter, or you could be a novelist, and there wasn't anything in between. Yeah, yeah. You know, and when I found out about essays, I was like, Oh, there I am. There's me. That's what I can do. That's a long way of answering your question, which say I never disavowed any of the other work that I was doing because I saw it mm. very much as serving the writing. If anything, I, I think I'm more in danger of falling into the trap of like, um I don't know, romanticizing how hard the labor has to be in order to support the writing. And I would say too, maybe makeup school was the first time I actually understood what school was good for because there's so many like the things that I did all day that I cared about so much and I got graded on that mattered in order for me to get my diploma, I don't do any of those things anymore. Like maybe when I'm doing my own makeup, I think about some of them, but not really. Um, but that was where... I still tight line. Oh, tight line. It's the best thing. <laughs> but like, you know, that was where I learned some things that I carry with me as a freelancer. I always think about my teacher's um, you know, giving us funny examples about like, let's say a director tells you they want this really like fresh face, dewy, glowy look, and then you show up and he's like, actually, I want like a matte, smoky eye, and you don't have any of that in your kit. You don't say like, oh, you didn't prepare me for this. You say, I'll figure it out. And then you do. Like, that's what you do. You don't say no. You say, I'll figure it out. And that's what I do in my freelancing all the time. Every time an editor is like, actually, we need 10 more interviews or we need way more research or we need to completely restructure this piece. And I have that moment of panic where what I want to say is I can't possibly do that. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I just say, I'll figure it out. And I do. You're a better person than me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I say it to my group chats. I just don't say it to the editor. (laughs) We've been looking in the archives of the National Writers Union at some of the old contracts they used to have for freelancers at publications that don't exist anymore. Is that that's where you found that Toni Morrison letter, right? When you were oh yes, archives. that's yeah. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that too, that's from the caucus they had before they even formed a union. That was her calling for a union, which was wonderful. Oh, um, yeah, but yeah, they used to have these letters of agreement that set the terms and scope of the freelance labor beyond just what they would get paid and what the deadline was. And one of the things that we realized was common um, was a percentage increase if the reporting increased, like if the scope of the reporting (laughs) expanded over the course of working on it, you got paid more. It was like... Wow, can you even imagine? So now that's something that we're talking about. I wish like, they taught you that shit in J school because they don't teach you that. Honestly, they mm. should. They should teach everybody. There, there should there be, used to be a contract negotiation class. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, 
maybe that's where I still see the myth of like this literary mm. mentality that you were talking about where it's this ivory tower um, and you can't like dirty your hands with anything as gross as money or like the material world mm-hmm. around you. And it's like, no, the material world is the work. Yeah, you totally. know, like to separate yourself from it would also mean cutting yourself off from every part of your life that made you want to be a writer, mm-hmm. I think. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. solidarity project and the union stuff is it is it specifically for writers or is it it is not it is for everybody um it started off as a group of freelancers who had some experience organizing primarily for the writers guild um most of us had been on the organizing committees or bargaining committees of websites that had unionized with the wga um, and then had either been laid off or taken buyouts Mm -hmm. which is another very common experience in media (laughs) And so, yeah, so I think a lot of us, once we had seen the effects of collective bargaining, it's sort of hard to see anything else, you know, like, mm. it's certainly not the most you can do to advocate for yourself and your for yourselves and your colleagues. Um, but it does so much, you know, and it does so much immediately. Just as a more recent example, at Vots, they just had their contract negotiations And it's the best contract I've ever seen in my life. And I'm almost embarrassed to admit how cynical I got in that I like when I saw some of the provisions they had secured, I was like, I didn't think this was possible. Like they now have a salary floor where nobody at the company can make less than $53,000 a year, no matter what their position is. Um, And so some people went from making $30,000 to $53,000 a year overnight. Wow. Like within the time it took to ratify that contract. So things like that, it's like, oh, we should all be unionizing. Everybody should have a union. But yeah, for a long time, the National Writers Union was for authors, reporters, journalists, like different types of writers. Um, It was a big deal when they let in their first photojournalist, which only happened a few years ago. The Freelance Solidarity Project, because it was born out of the wave of organizing and digital media, um, we felt very strongly that we had to include all different types of workers, not just because the needs are so much the same, right? Like everybody needs the same protections, um, but also to reflect the changing state of media. It's no longer possible to get a job just as a writer, like when I was at MTV, the expectation was was that if you were a writer, you were also going to do media training to do on camera. You were going to develop a podcast or appear on other people's podcasts. You were going to do all the social media stuff. Like, yeah, so we really wanted to make sure that we had podcast producers, video producers, graphic designers, social media editors, copy editors, fat checkers. Like the way I tend to think about it is everybody in editorial production. 
Mm-hmm. It is also an open shop, which means that anyone who pays dues can belong. The idea of a union seems incongruent with a lot of artistic paths. And yeah, I don't know. Can you give a brief explanation maybe of like why we don't tend to think of being a musician or being uh, a writer or a photographer as like work in the same way? It's so hard to talk about coherently because I think it's wrapped up in a lot of a lot of fear is what I hear when people start talking about how um, they should be so lucky to have this work. Like if you, it's a privilege to make art. Exactly. And if you call attention to it, it'll go away, Mm. right? Like don't look too closely or somebody will notice and take it away from you. Um, And also this like, again, maybe this is where I was getting that idea about how, you know, if you're not struggling or if you're not, um, you know, if you're not scrambling to make ends meet, then you're not a real writer. Um, there's a sort of mentality that if it's hard, it must be worth it. Right. You know, and if you were to make it easier, that would encourage mediocrity. Mm-hmm. I've had that question come up a little bit um, where it's like, don't unions make it harder to fire people um, who are not good writers? And it's like, if you think feeling safe and secure as a person in this world is going to hurt your writing, what do you think a bankruptcy from a medical emergency will do to your writing because that's what we're dealing with in America. That's what we deal with in New York when you have all of these people who are unable to provide their own basic health insurance for themselves um, to get hung up on this, these very philosophical notions of what a writer needs while it seems to me like deliberately ignoring Again, the physical realities of being a person in this world who needs a doctor and a dentist and a therapist and maybe glasses or something like that Mm. in order to just be able to sit down and think, you know, the smart philosophical thoughts that you want to put out into the world. We are, I think now, like, I guess in like the second or third generation of communities where our experience with unions is so limited where yeah like a long time ago that wouldn't have been the case it would have been a lot more average as well you know because of my background in fashion and in film um those are two heavily unionized workforces in a way that kind of goes unrecognized because it is so entrenched right Right. the writers guild was founded for freelancers it was founded for screenwriters who are all contract employees and they found a way to get health care to get portable benefits all writers just like if novelists can be part of a union then like why can't like uh, an emerging rapper not be part of some (laughs) type of you know yeah i mean there are musician unions like I was talking to some organizers who were saying how difficult it is for them to even find musicians. Like, so they're like, what are we going to do? Hang around every orchestra pit or whatever. I was like, I mean, <laughs> just that's go on a- SoundCloud. Yeah. There's plenty of them on there. <laughs> oh my God. Unionize SoundCloud. <laughs> I know so SoundCloud. many people who would be down for that. <laughs> Any type of art, you know, you sort of have to lock yourself up, just you and your brain, which can be kind of scary. Um, and so I do see a lot of the labor organizing Um, and the wave of unions as a way for people to fight that, to be like, no, I'm not in this alone. It's not just me, Um, you know, giving up on this idea that if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps or whatever, you'll get all the credit because the credit is just not worth it.
you're working on a book. I am working on a book. Can you tell me about it? Um, I'm working on a book about divorce. My mother is a divorce pain eater, and she worked at our family basement the whole time we were growing up. So that was my first job, answering her phones. My mom really wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. Like, that was really, really important to her. She was trained as a teacher. Um, but then when she had my sister and me, she wanted to, like, stay home and raise us. Um, but, yeah, my dad was very sick, and so they couldn't afford uh, just, like, one income when he stopped working so much. And so, yeah, that was sort of like her compromise. Like she could work and support us, but she was still in the home. You right, know, she yeah. was still around. But of course, what was funny about that is that it brought a lot of other people's families into our home as well. Uh, and then my grandmother was divorced twice. I am divorced. My parents got divorced. The idea is to look at um, those three generations of divorce and how they ran parallel to the legal applications and cultural representations as divorce changed, primarily in North America. Mm -hmm. It started off being way more like research with some anecdotes about my personal life, and now it's very quickly becoming memoir with a few research anecdotes. So that we'll is see. So interesting. We'll I was going to say because the way you're describing it, I was like, this is very different from the last time because. You know, you'd mentioned your mom, your grandmother, and yourself, but you hadn't framed it like that last time. It really was something that was so obviously present when I was writing the essay that became the book proposal, but I hadn't thought to describe it as such mm. until I'd had to explain what the book was at so many parties. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, where all of a sudden it clicked in. I was just like, oh, those three generations are the three eras that the book's research needs right. to cover. Yeah. A big part of my early thinking was that marriage is a form of social control, which I still believe. Like, um, you know, if you want to look at the way any government thinks about their people, look at their marriage laws. Most fascist governments, the first thing they do when they take power is get rid of divorce. Mm. The only fascist government that allowed for divorce were the Nazis uh, in Germany because they thought um, if people stayed married and they were unhappy, they wouldn't have babies. As I always say, you know, divorce is a very common experience, but it doesn't make it ordinary. Mm. I think I'm interested in the things that most people will experience in their own way. Uh, and maybe how like the expectations of what we think those experiences should feel like or look like warp our actual times living through them, mm -hmm. right? Just think about how many people we know are divorced or who do get married or who have children um, or who make these like huge transformative moves in their lives. None of them will experience it the same way as any other, right. but it all contributes to what makes it such a common part of our lives right if that made sense how would you describe your beat my or do beat. you have one Ooh, do i have a beat yeah i guess i do i do still write a lot about fashion um which i like very much i always joke but i'm so serious if you want to meet the most militant socialists in the world you gotta go to the fashion industry because they see like yeah we see how money works you know, like you see a type of wealth up close. Right. If anything, um, I would say my beat is something that my old boss at the hairpin once described to me. Um, this was Corey Sitra, and he said that he thought the hairpin should be a place for petty enthusiasms. Uh. And I feel like I've really turned that into my beat. Fashion, film, but these are important things, but mm. I know they are not the most important things in the world. Mm. Um, so it's not petty in their smallness. Like maybe it's 
petty in their, you know, in their like relative place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm lucky in that I primarily write about things that I'm enthusiastic about, right? right? Like that I get, um, you know, I'm think I'm at a place now where I'm lucky to have relationships with editors who know that they can come to me for um, like a good fair piece and that I'm not there for like either a complete takedown or like a complete, I don't know, fluff piece um, that I can balance the two feelings. I'm definitely the type of writer who over-researches. So my beat then expands with every assignment, which I like. You know, if I'm writing about a movie, you I gotta like, negotiate that uh, uh, report that uh, raise as the scope. It shouldn't be a privilege for a writer to feel like they have that time and space, but it is. It is. I'm very lucky. Um, so one thing I've admired about you and value about your friendship is that you have created a bit of space for me to incorporate contemplation into my work. How did you arrive at a place where you felt like your ideas? no matter how over-researched or <laughs> or specific or, like, ever-expanding yeah. they are, had value? Like, did you always feel like that? Or was it because it was, per- it was nurtured in a particular way? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know if I have ever felt like that, and I wonder if I will. Um... Like, I would hope in my writing, I project that sort of confidence that I'm like, I think these ideas are worth sharing, Mm -hmm. which is why I'm here taking up space on your website or your magazine saying them. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do really struggle with that same sort of self-doubt or wondering, like, you know, where my ideas come from, why they matter. Right. Why I should be saying them. Um, and especially with women, there's this idea that, you know, um, when they have something to say, the ideas just pour out of them. Like they almost can't control it. It's just like mm. it just flows onto the page. And that does such a disservice to how much control and struggle writing requires. Like every piece of writing necessitates a draft that nobody ever is going to see. Right. But I definitely relate to what you were saying about having the utility of a piece of writing be so self-evident, you know, and being like, oh, well, that's why I'm writing this. When it's just yourself and you, you know, are walking around with these sentences forming in your head and you feel like you have like either a point or an observation or an argument that you have to get out, but you don't know why. Um, Yeah, I found as an editor when I was at the Hairpin, a lot of my job was just convincing these writers who I believed in so much mm. that they they didn't have to be the ones to ask themselves why. You know, they had to be the ones to get those thoughts onto paper. There's a huge element of thinking that I do that is just convincing myself to write. Mm. And I often wonder, what would I do if I didn't have to have that fight with myself first? Um, one thing that's been really valuable for me in like the last year and a half it's now almost two years since we had breakfast in New York and you were like, maybe just do some morning pages. And yeah, that was like the beginning of like my, what I'm calling my rehab, but, <laughs> but not being so precious about it. Everything that I think matters having to like, I either have to receive money for it or it has to be written. 
like just putting stuff out there in like different forms Mm -hmm. has been so useful for me as like both a filtration process and talking out loud and kind of affirming or kind of like um, reshaping things that I'm thinking about, but also just like it allows me to put so much stuff down. Um, And so then I can like actually focus the writing part on like the things that I need to sit down and write. Um, And so I wonder if you have that, like, do you have, I don't know, just like place repositories, I suppose, for ideas or things that you want to work through um, that don't need to be like uh, an essay. (laughs) (laughs) There is like a group of friends that I have in New York who struggle not with writing the same type of things, but the same sort of feelings around writing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's so incredible to have readers who I can send like absolute trash to like and when I say trash I don't mean like garbage but I mean like bullet points Mm. you know where it's just like is this something or do you see what I'm saying um and that is usually enough to get it from like just a feeling or an idea into an actual piece of writing yeah maybe that's what I really find so hard about being alone with my thoughts it's the loneliness You can follow the show on Instagram at Burnout Pod. Theme song for Burnout is by Lal. The song is called Dark Beings and original music provided by Jamal Padmore. And as a reminder, if you're on iTunes or any other podcasting platform that allows you to rate and review shows, please do so for Burnout. Subscribe to my newsletter. It's also called Burnout and you can find it at anupa.substack.com. That's A-N-U-P-A.substack.com. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll talk to you soon.